Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's bring in Lawrence Boone, shall we? OECD Chief Economist out with that forecast earlier this morning. Lawrence, fantastic to catch up with you. Can we just start right there? The degree to which this stimulus plan, this relief plan down in D.C. has shaped your forecast for the year ahead. So actually we are revising our forecast upwards for two reasons. First, you know, countries manage a little better the pandemic. Some of them are even vaccinating. They can reopen their economy. And yes, the one thing which has changed compared with December is the 1.9 trillion U.S. stimulus on top of the 900 billion in December. We think that will lift and global GDP growth by about a full percentage point. Laurence, good morning. Tom Keen in New York. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm fascinated, Laurence, of the diffusement of the U.S. prosperity over to China. Do you lift China up in step with America? So, you know, China had gone out of the pandemic a little earlier than the U.S., um, and it's still growing fast. You know, it has has benefited, actually, from the demand for medical products, for IT products. Now, um, there's one thing which hasn't changed in our projections. There were tension in trade, you know, related to intellectual property rights, transfer of technology, uh, support to state enterprises. And, uh, and, and with a renewed multilateral um, world today, with a new head of WTO, we think this, this issue will start being addressed. So there's a question uh, about whether this really will benefit the rest of the world in the sort of reflationary uh, mood that a lot of people were talking about. If you do get the U.S. driving growth and you get a stronger dollar, typically that is not necessarily positive for a lot of the developing world. How do you see that playing out and shifting the landscape for growth going forward? So there's one thing we say in our projections is that the recovery is very uneven across the world. We're seeing divergences widening. Um, that has to do in particular, I mean, in some instances with what's happening on commodity prices. But in most cases, you know, the driving factor of the driving uh, force and engine of this, of this outlook is really what's happening on the health front. So the divergences that we are seeing across countries today, they have to do with health management, with the pace of vaccination, and with how many sectors and how large a share of employees cannot work because of the health situation. I think we should really remain focused on this. That's our main message. Oh, then let's go to Europe then. The challenges of Europe right now, I, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I know, Laurence, you're very much up to speed on this. What is your timeline for prosperity for Europe given the pandemic? So in Europe, we have barely revised our outlook. You know, we think that they will renew with pre-pandemic level by about uh, mid-2022. 
which is roughly a year later than the US. Um, and that again has to do with how, how vaccination and the, and, the, and the health crisis is being managed. What we are telling Europe is, you know, there's a lot on fiscal support which is being done. Economically, policies have been fantastic. Policymakers have done the job. But on vaccination, they need to go much faster. If we're at war with the virus, really Europe needs to get on a war footing now. Lawrence Boone, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us this morning. OECD Chief Economist. Right now, and this is a really, really important interview, there's something about being in the crucible of market economics and market analysis and not only getting it right, but getting it right with a certain verve. Mark McCormick joins us now from Toronto Dominion Bank, their global head of FX strategy. Mark, I want you to revisit how you framed the dollar three months and six months ago, and then, of course, give us the now what. Sure, thanks. Um, it, it's all about a rotation from the 2020 liquidity trade to the 2021 macro divergence trade. And so the dollar kind of sitting at the epicenter of that, the market was positioned purely on liquidity, purely on low rates, low term premium, and that was the benefactor of a weaker dollar. So if you only thought about what the Fed could be doing, you, you extrapolated that trend into a weaker US dollar for the entire year. Behind the scenes, growth was diverging. The vaccine campaign was getting off to better starts in the United States. And if you fast forward to where we're at now, we are seeing a much stronger dollar reconnecting with real yields because we're seeing more macro volatility come through the markets, through the VIX, through the move, and through currency vol. And that is flushing out all of these stale positions right now. What do you respond? How do you respond, I should say, to the weak dollar crew? It's clearly consensus. I know they've got to cover that trade, but, but how do you respond to them and say there'll be a resiliency to dollar? Well, I think it also depends, too. It's critical moving forward out of this positioning stage or this positioning element behind this transition of which basket you're looking at. I, I absolutely, we are still very bullish on the dollar versus the euro. But I think what you can think about is over the next month after we see this rates move flushed out, there is an element where the factors that we're tracking in markets that are making money affects its terms of trade. So it's linked to the commodity cycle. It's about carry. So again, yield pickup is important, but it's critically most important. It's all about economic growth. So you can see a world where in G10, European currencies underperform, but you could also see currencies that are leveraged to the global uh, reflation cycle still doing well. So your commodity currencies, your undervalued EM currencies, also EM Asia can outperform. So it's going to be, I think, a mixed dollar in the second half of the year. And that's part of this washout is correlations break down and it's no yep. longer dollar up, dollar down. You've used that phrase three times. Wash out, flush out. And I want to talk about it with you right now. This is how you get whipsawed making big trades. You get sucked into what looks like a flush out, then you extrapolate it out as the new trend. Mark, how complex is that as you look at things right now? And how difficult is it to actually draw a line between something that's just a washout and something that's the beginning of a new trend? Yeah, it's a great question because it's the context of the economic cycle. Are rates rising because the global economy is doing better? And that's a critical element. The taper tantrum was all about rates rising. We had mediocre economic growth through that period. Uh, what we see now is if we go back to 2017 reflation, rates are rising because economic growth expectations are rising. What we absolutely are seeing now is a combination that is very similar to that, where rates are rising to validate 
the rise in global growth expectations, which is coming through on the normalization of economic mobility. We're starting to see the breaks between COVID numbers and economic mobility, which is a huge element where vaccines have changed the way that people can move around the economy more. So it's not back to pre-COVID levels, but there's a higher new level of equilibrium, which means we need more vol and we need higher real rates. So in the context of that, what matters for markets now is that real rates are validating the move in economic growth. And, you know, on the side of it, there's obviously liquidity and other technical factors that are happening in rates. But once this settles down, it's a good equilibrium for, for risk assets. And so it's not purely a return to U.S. exceptionalism. It's a blending of global reflation and exceptionalism, I think, for the second half of the year. So another way of saying that is there's been a pain trade. It might be ongoing for a bit longer, but once that's over, the narrative that was at the end of last year will continue and reassert itself. Can you just talk about how much further the pain trade has to go? Sure, I'd say we, we got at least another month. If we look at our just our positioning model, think about the pain trade. Um, we're still talking about a dollar short that's a little under a standard deviation. So we are not even close to neutral levels yet. Um, so even if you look at some of the valuation models that we look at, what we see is that G10 currencies are still slightly overvalued, where EM currencies are the one trading at a discount. So we haven't seen the full washout play out in effect. And again, we still probably have on, on the real rates models that we look at that are gro uh, global macro based, we could still see another 25 basis points um, in real rates. So if you see that, again, within the context of the Fed coming next week, the ECB next week, we've got all these major central banks. If the, the moves are allowed to progress, uh, suggesting that, again, that it's, the economy is doing better, then that means there's more room for the dollar. So, again, it's maybe in broad terms, another one and a half, two percent, um, again, against all major currencies. But again, euro is now testing the 118 level. We could probably see a marginal breakthrough there. But again, I would say this is probably about another month to, to six weeks. Um, in terms of this pain trade across FX. Mark, I think the point you're trying to make here more broadly is that we're always looking for this broad-based directional trade that we can all just get behind and it chugs along through the year. And you're talking about nuance and dispersion. Within EM, walk me through the nuance now just to wrap things up. What's the favorite? Is there a LATAM lean? Is it Mexico? Is it the peso winner off the back of a huge plan in DC? What is it? So what's going to be interesting is because each of those baskets is going to trade differently. So if you go through LATAM, you'd probably want to pick currencies that are leveraged to the commodity cycle, leveraged to North American growth, and also trading at cheap valuations. So um, our EM team likes selling dollar max rallies. And again, you can see there's a nice discount. And if we get the $1.9 tri in U.S. fiscal and a $3 trillion, uh, uh, infrastructure package, North America looks solid. You got uh, the Canadian dollar, the Mexican peso should outperform other currencies across other regions right um and again if you go to something uh like the ruble the ruble would do well in that backdrop as well yeah. uh given its link to commodity prices this mark, is also like we like mark, norway mark, i gotta be wicked quick here we're out of time i know you're a rate strategist as well <laughs> do the foreigners show up to buy the auctions well that's a that's a big element i think that's a big part of what priya's uh call is along with the u.s rates team is there is an element where supply is going to drive up uh rates a little bit higher in the short run so the auctions can not go maybe as well as people are expecting. And that's part of the, the, the continued sell off. We get okay. rates in the next month. Um, okay. And that would also you know, drive now, this pain trade. Mark, congratulations on your call. It's so out of consensus. It's just wonderful to have you on.
Right now, we're going to stagger to Minneapolis. There was a freeze there. It's a gorgiosity, 67 degrees, heading towards uh, New York. James Paulson joins us now, Chief Investment Officer, Luthold at Whedon as well. Jim, how do you recalibrate, given all the turmoil of 2020 into the first three months of this year, how do you reset right now? <laughs> well, I, I just, uh, I think I'm just most focused on, you know, um, you know, in my in my entire career, going back to 1983, Tom, um, my biggest, my fastest growth rate I've ever experienced in a calendar year was 1984, when it was a little over eight percent. Um, I think we got a shot of taking that out this year, uh, of having growth that's north of eight. And if we do, that's growth that we haven't seen maybe uh, only a handful of times in the entirety of post-war history. And that is the big elephant in the room. Um, you can talk about um, inflation coming up a little bit. You can talk about interest rates coming up a little bit. But if we have anything in that ballpark of growth, uh, we're also going to have earnings, which are much higher than people currently have forecasted for this year, probably more like $200 in the S&P 500. <laughs> And with that, at least for this year, it's just going to be hard, I think, to keep a good equity down long term here over, over the course of this year, very long, if, if you're going to give me that type of growth. And if we're also talking like 5% growth in 2022, boy, you know, we, we could have a lot of interest rate and inflation pressure and still have an equity market that could do pretty well in that environment. So, Jim, I think that final point's the big point, 22, and whether this year ends in June. And people start thinking about, hang on a minute, huge growth. We're all positioned for that now. What does 22 look like? What does 22 look like to you? Well, I, I agree with that. I think, that, Jonathan, I, I, I'm pretty confident for this year. And, and, and if we run hard this year, let's say through the fall, we could get a big correction at some point. 2022 is going to be an adjustment year, I think, um, where we're going to have to figure out whether inflation's for real or not. And I'm still a little bit on the fence on that. We've certainly, our policy officials have done everything they possibly could to create inflation, in my book. And we've done more than ever before to create inflation. The problem is against that, we've got a lot of disinflationary force in the world with nasty and continued bad global demographics, including here. Yep. And also the leading, the leading force of the emerging world story, China has worse demographics than any of us. Um, that's a pretty powerful displaced force. We've got a technology sector leading the world, which is nothing but eschews inflation or disinflation everywhere in its path, and that's going to con continue uh, overall. Um, we've had falling monetary velocity for more than a decade, and, and uh, you know, so you could maybe handle a lot of money growth with, without the type of velocity we used to have. We have disinflationary mindsets in the world after 30 years of disinflation that are, that are tough, I think, to... Uh, to change or alter. And I think we're going to get a pickup in productivity because when I look back historically, when you have a big run in growth stocks uh, over the last several years, you typically, that is fouled uh, rather regularly by a pickup in productivity. So my guess, my, I tilt a little that inflation is going to be a burst coming in the next 12 months and then it's going to calm back down again and maybe allow this recovery to continue over for several more years. Game plan time, Jim. Let's do it then. Growth's going to be better into the middle of this year. Inflation's going to pick up. The base effects kick in. We know all this. And what's amazing, I keep repeating it, take a bull, take a bear, they agree on the same thing. And at some point, 
you start to get that huge tug of war between the people that think it's transient and the people that think it's not, the people who think rates will rise and the people that think they won't. If you start to get volatility off the back of that tug of war, what's your game plan? How do you step into risk or step out? How do you approach that story? Yeah. Well, I think you, you do a couple things. I, I, I think you, you want to minimize your exposure to bonds yet uh, and bonds exposures. Uh, interest rate exposure. I think you just want to just have that absolutely minimized. I think you want to stay uh, more cyclically orientated here. Um, and I think you want to be away from the United States. Um, I, grow, this is a synchronized recovery and those markets are coming back too. They, but they're not going to feel, I don't think, near the pressure uh, that we're going to get here in the United States going into 2022 from, from overheat pressure. So I would have a, a good overweight away from the United States. Now beyond that, um, I kind of I think it's going to be really difficult to call this correction when it comes, um, uh, but we can all try. Um, if if we really get excited here, Jonathan, and we, we go a lot higher, let's say we blow through four thousand, go up to forty four hundred or something here, I I probably would take some octane off and park it in cash for a period of time, and see if we can't get a sentiment correction uh, that could be pretty big and pretty nasty. Um, and if if we do have one of those, then maybe reevaluate that point whether I think. Uh, we have a sustainable recovery going on. Part of it is more information is going to come yet. Yeah. If we get towards this year end and the unemployment rate, you know, is heading towards 4% or something, I have a very different approach perhaps going into 2022 than if we get there and we're still at 5% or something. Uh, how tight are the resource markets in, uh, looking as we head into that uh, next year. So I'm going to let some of that play out. But some of this also matters about whether the market goes nuts between now and then or right. whether it corrects. So, Jim, there's also a question about big tech, because if you see the longer term trend remaining the way it has been, a low inflation, uh, slower growth environment, is it time to buy big tech on this dip? Well, here, I, I'm underweight. Uh, a big tech. I, I just think it's not so much I have a problem with technology. I think they're going to continue to dominate the world for over the next five, ten years. I really do. But um, I think their earnings growth at this point doesn't look as good as relative to what small caps can be doing right now or cyclical sectors or or even more commodity oriented plays. Um, so but I would still own tech and I still do. I, I just have an underweighted position. If you're going to win in this market, you got to be in the broader market plays, which are more cyclical, Lisa. The problem with that is it means that you're going to be, uh, introduce yourself to downside draws that could be fairly dramatic. The way to balance that is to continue to own technology. When this market pulls back on, on overheat concerns, I think technology holds up a little bit. I'd much rather hold that than I would other defensive sectors. Jim, really smart, sharp, as always. Great debate. Jim Paulson there. Jim, thank from you. From Luthold Weed and Capital Management. Right now on the headline that I'm sure all of you saw yesterday from the CDC of Atlanta, Amish Adalja joins us with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Adalja, I remember CDC as the cool place to work a million uh, years ago. They did malaria out of World War II and then built and built out the excellence of America in microbiology and virology. That headline yesterday, when you saw it, how did you respond? 
I thought this was something that was well anticipated that people wanted to get guidance like this. And I expected the CDC guidance to be cautious. And I think they, they were pretty cautious, but at least it shows people what the future holds. And it's important to remember that this CDC guidance is a first iteration. It is something that will be that will evolve as more data becomes available and as the CDC gets more comfortable. So expect this to be revised and, and more and more guidance change for those who are vaccinated. And it really shows you why vaccination is important, why it will change your life and, and give you your life back. Dr. Adalto, why are they being so conservative with their approach? I think they're being conservative because they're a big public health agency. They're talking about population health. They want to get it completely right. They, they've had some missteps during the early parts of this pandemic, and they don't want to relive that. So they're going to make a decision that's data-driven. So once they think enough data has accumulated, for example, on asymptomatic spread, maybe from countries like Israel, where so many people have been vaccinated, they're going to have this threshold cross, and then they're going to make a, make a change. So I think it's, it's not uncommon for public health agencies to be more cautious than what an like what what I as an individual infectious disease doctor might tell my patient who's been vaccinated. But there so so I do think it's 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 par for the course though. It's what we expected. The the the, the, the weight of the risks though aren't equal. Oh. The idea that the more people who get vaccinated, the more the transmission mechanism seems to be broken and we see a decline in the number of cases. Can we get a sense of how much the vaccinations that have already been distributed have already reduced uh, the spread of the virus and if we got it that much more quickly, if we'd have that much slower of a spread? The, the, the general principle holds, but it's very hard to untangle mask wearing, social distancing, how much population immunity is around because people got infected, plus the vaccine. The vaccine component is going to increase over time. And each new vaccine that goes into someone's arms makes the life of that virus very, very, makes it more difficult because they have less people that they can infect. But it's hard to know exactly what happens uh, there. But I do think you're going to see, for example, if you can gather indoors with vaccinated people, what's the difference between doing that and having vaccinated people in a restaurant? It's probably not that big of a difference. And I think you're going to see more guidance tied to real openings of certain restaurants and capacity as they get more comfortable as we get more data. We've made tremendous progress and some states are already moving forward pretty quickly. Texas reopening, dropping the mask mandate. I think Wyoming joining them in the last 24 hours. That'll start next week, I believe. Doctor, how concerned are you about that right now? I'm concerned about one aspect of it, and that's dropping of the mask mandates. I think there is an argument to be made for capacity, increasing capacity at stores and increasing capacity at restaurants. But in order to do that safely from a business continuity perspective, you want your patrons, you want your employees to still be wearing masks because there's still tens of thousands of cases occurring every day. We still don't have enough people vaccinated. So I do think keeping the masks in place for some time until we get further along in this vaccination rollout is going to make it easier to stay at that high capacity level without getting exposures, without getting cases among your employees and patrons and having to do quarantine and, and mm -hmm. contact tracing. So I think that I think we should separate those two things. Dr. Delja, the president will lay out the path forward on Thursday. And part of this is the mystery of what you're very comfortable with, which is these viruses. How do they go away if we all get vaccinated, like for smallpox or name the other horrific illness or COVID, where do the bad viruses go? Well, well, smallpox is the only human disease that's ever been eradicated, and that's really an exception that proves the rule. It's very hard to eradicate a disease. And a disease like COVID-19, which comes from a family of viruses that cause about 25% of our common colds, spreads very efficiently, and also has an unknown intermediate animal host, meaning we know it comes from bats, but we don't know where else it comes from. It's already when it's 
put itself into minks. That's not something that's going to ever go to zero. We're not going to eradicate or eliminate COVID-19. What we're going to do is make it much more controllable. We're going to defang it so it cannot cause serious disease, hospitalization, death, or ever threaten a hospital capacity again. So, so it's not something about making it go completely away. It's making it a manageable problem, more like other respiratory viruses. And the vaccines, all of them do that very, very well. The question I think many people are asking, Doctor, is if we do get a new variant, how quickly these vaccines, these new mRNA vaccines can respond to that, the lead time, the lag time, so to speak. How quickly do you think we can respond? Immediately. mRNA vaccines can basically be tweaked at, in, in, a, in a matter of days or maybe even a matter of hours. It's just a question of then doing uh, having enough production capacity to put a new a new vaccine or a new version of the vaccine out there but i don't think we're across that threshold because even when you look at those variants the variants of concern p1 and 135 uh, all of those even in the face of those variants the vaccines still stop what matters serious disease hospitalization and death and to me yeah. that's the threshold that we have to worry about not mild disease but is are people getting vaccinated and then getting breakthrough infections that are landing them in the hospital the answer i, I to my knowledge is no that's not happened and that to me is the threshold for where we tweak the vaccine such a good final point, Doctor, and we appreciate your time and your ongoing contribution to this program, sir. Dr. Amish Adalja, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Senior Scholar. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.